Hi there, and welcome to this, which is our fifth uh, free webinar in the uh, Smart Building series that we run at Memory. And today we are discussing the rapidly changing video surveillance landscape. Uh, and I hope you can all see uh, the slides up on the screen. Uh, and we are with Frederick Nielsen, and I'm going to uh, introduce him in a bit. Uh, first off, I just want to say thank you to uh, Project Haystack, uh, our um, sponsor for this year. Uh, and they're an open source project that are standardizing data models and web services. So essentially trying to make it easier to unlock value from the vast amounts of data that all of these smart devices and buildings are producing. So um, if you're interested in contributing or finding out more about Project Haystack, go to their website. It's uh, project-haystack.org. Uh, last thing to say is by way of housekeeping is just uh, please um, feel free to ask some questions. Uh, happy to take them. Uh, I think the way it works is if you just type them in, I get them here, and then uh, I can uh, I can either take them or I can um, give them to Frederick as well. So without further ado, I'd just like to say uh, hi to Frederick Nelson. Hey Jim, how are you? I'm Thanks for having me today. Absolutely, um, it's a pleasure as always. Uh, so you uh, work for Axis Communications and I also, which we're going to talk about later, is about this um, book that you've written. Um, so yeah, maybe we can, we can start there. Um, tell, me about, tell me about the book. Yeah, no, it's, uh, uh, thanks for reaching out and having that discussion. I, I, I'm sitting here with, with a couple of thoughts as we start. And uh, one is, uh, it was a slight mistake. We, we joked about it in the email yesterday when you sent out yeah. uh, the invitation. I think it said May 17th, 2006. <laughs> and 2006 seems like, you know, an eternity ago. Mm -hmm. and, and, but it's actually 2006 in May was when the publisher first contacted me to do the first edition for the uh, for the fir uh, for the first edition of the Intelligent Network video book. So it was kind of fun to reflect upon that and say, okay, that's interesting. That's eleven years ago when I actually started this journey uh, to be an amateur author. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that was fun. And, and the other one is the rapidly changing video surveillance market. And uh, going back to two thousand six. We talked about how it was rapidly changing then, and then we fast forward now to 2017, and it's still a rapidly changing market, which excites me, uh, both from business perspective and you know how it's being perceived in society, and also of course from a technology point of view. So uh, I think it's I enjoy being in a market that is rapidly changing because that is providing business opportunity and challenges all the time. Um, so that's that's kind of fun. Yeah. And, and the book, uh, just maybe a little bit for people who are listening, you know, what, what is the, the kind of key takeaways or the core of, of what the book is about? Yeah, so that's uh, the original book and, and the product started in 2006 and I only got going in 2007, was done a year later and then was published in, in the end of 2000 and uh, uh, end of 2007, beginning of 2008, I believe, or mid-2008. Mid um, and it really came from the rapidly changing market back then. And uh, the reason for the tidy intelligent network video, Access at the time was promoting the shift from analog over to IP. <clears throat> so that was our main focus. And one big driver back then, if you remember, 
was intelligence. There was a lot of talk about video intelligence, analytics, how it would solve all kinds of problems, uh, huge promises. And that was one of the reasons that the publisher contacted me and said, can you write about video intelligence? I said, I sure can, but I also want to write about network video. I think that's the bigger trend that is happening right now. So that's the reason for the title. And um, I don't know if you've been writing any books, but it's, um, think through it carefully before you do it, because it <laughs> takes five times as much time as you would ever think. Um, and when you're in the middle of it, you kick yourself and say, why did I ever start this project? <laughs> and when you're done, it's, it's extremely gratifying to see you know, the finished product. Of course, I'm very proud of it, or anyone would be very proud of it. But also, <clears throat> the, when the market is shifting, uh, and there, it, it is a rapid change, there is a need for education. And um, that was one of the reasons for the book. Um, we used it both internally for our access academies, <clears throat> as well as it was sold externally uh, on Amazon and, and Barnes and & Nobles and through ASAS Bookstore and other places. Mm. And I was very pleased to see a good reception of the first edition. Um, I think the print run was close to 12,000 copies, which is pretty big for a book in this relatively narrow field. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that was a great thing, but the challenging thing is I was keep getting requests for up the book over the last four years and I was like I'm not going to do this again I'm not going to do this again and eventually the publisher uh, Mark Listevnik at um, CRC Press convinced me to do it and, and um, what, what really I took away from from working updating the book is like okay so what has really changed over those last um, seven eight years since I worked on the first edition right so as you go through every chapter and every text and, and every image and every partner company that's mentioned in the book, um, it, it, it provided a really great checkpoint to see what has happened, what has changed, uh, in which ways we were wrong in the assessments back in 2008, and what things actually accelerated and happened faster, and what things could we not foresee. Right. Um, a great exercise to do, so, to be able to. It was a great exercise. And, and the, the first reflection was really, and looking at the title again, Intelligent Network Video, the biggest driver back in 2007 or so was this talk about video intelligence. And that would say it changed the market and changed the world. And it was estimated by quite a few market researchers to become a market of its own. There was conferences just about video analytics, just with video analytics companies. And there was tremendous funding going in from um, from venture capital into those companies, spending millions or tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to build applications. And if you fast forward today, um, first of all, the, the market is not separate by any stretch. It's kind of integrated with the rest of the video surveillance market. And many companies that do video surveillance campus also do video intelligence. So it's not an ecosystem in the sense that it was thought back then. Um, you probably remember, you know, Object Video and Texas Instrument and other companies you know, promoting platforms and ecosystems around this. Right. Um, and that did not really happen to that extent. Um, and and there was also there was a couple of things that were needed to make it successful. There was processing power, um, image quality, and algorithms, the three things that need to work. Mm. Um, and processing power is kind of caught up. It was a little bit too early back then. Imaging quality and imaging details are now much better, um, and, and algorithms are getting getting better as well. But it's 
probably not to the size of the market or even close to what it was estimated back then, mm-hmm. and even though it's finding some applications in there. So I think that that was the biggest reflection that, um, wow, uh, a lot of market researchers and companies were, were you know, wrong in their estimates about intelligent, video intelligence at the time. Right. It was a bit of a false start. Yeah, it's a bit of a false start. And, and now, um, today, um, it's kind of coming back and there's a different company. There's NVIDIA and they're promoting it very heavily in a similar sense as, as uh, Texas Instruments did back then with their processing platform mm. and other companies as well. And, and there's definitely, I was reading a, the number of companies that mention artificial intelligence in their quarterly statements. I mean, any companies, anything from Ford to Starbucks to, you know, uh, Active Communications. And that is kind of skyrocketed over the last year or two. So it, it is coming to light. And, and I believe it's, it's, it's a future, but it's still a lot of work that remains to really make it a reliable, mm. you know, a reality every, everywhere. Do you think the, well, we can call it a fast start or not, but I'm, I'm, I certainly echo what you, you know, you said about this, uh, looking back at around 10 years ago and, and seeing that what was, what was being talked about then and, and it's not moved as quickly as, as people have predicted. Do you think that maybe damaged the perception of the market in, in the end users, from the end users' perspective, that they were something that didn't, that wasn't quite ready? Yeah, I think to some extent um, it, it did. And uh, we work closely with some end customers uh, that where we have a good relationship with them and they change ideas. And one of them, without mentioning the name, many years ago said, hey, you know, video intelligence, great solution, looking for a problem to solve in my organization. So they, I don't know how much time they spent, probably two, three man years to evaluate everything that was out in the market. This is probably about 2009, 2010. And it was very difficult for them to find any application where it actually solved the problem without creating more new ones with false, false positives, etc. So I think, some people who've been in the business have a little bit of bad taste in their mouths, but I think, um, like any technology, it takes time to mature. Um, you have this, you know, Gartner maturity curve, and, and you know, it, it's getting into the upward slope of, you know, now there actually are some applications, and it's time to look at it again, but with some skepticism, like with any technology. Mm, yeah. So w- the, this slide we're looking at, we put up some some key kind of words there right it'd be interesting to get your opinion on then on on where we are with some of these things um i think the one i'd like to start with would be hosted video yes um absolutely when it comes to hosted video it's definitely something that um was not really covered in the book back in the first edition but has got some space here in the second edition one of the new chapters and personally i think that's a very exciting space um and um, it's a market, again, that has taken much longer time to get adaption when it comes to video surveillance or, or security in general. Uh, but if you're looking around and looking at other markets that um, affect us, um, hosted or cloud solution is definitely something that happens in all businesses, anything from Microsoft 365 to what you, consume, you, know, what you use as a consumer. Mm. And really it comes down to uh, having scalable solutions, um, you know, with a, with a monthly fee instead of an upfront investment. And also for smaller businesses or home or consumers, 
not to have any IT expertise for doing backups or getting the latest firmware, but basically you pay a certain fee a month for getting the latest technology and making sure it's safe, secure, and updated all the time. And when I think about those benefits, I see no reasons why we wouldn't see it also in the video surveillance and security space, especially in the small business side. And we've been trying to work with telcos or cable providers on, on some side and say, okay, maybe they are the ones to provide this service to, to small businesses. Right. Uh, alarm operators as well. Alarm operators in some markets have a tendency not to be super excited about video verification. Um, I don't know that market well enough. I think there's some loss that if you have video verification, you know, the, there's there's rules and laws about video verification that some in some states you like to have and some states you don't like to have for that reason. So you're still struggling a little bit with with that model, um, and then you have some technical challenges with bandwidth and storage, which can be solved with hybrid solutions. We have some local storage with SD cards or NAS, um, but it's definitely a a great business model um, for small and medium-sized businesses that we've believed very strongly in still. We worked on it for a long time, but we started to see some very promising signs uh, with some partners. Right. I mean, it is, again, one, and I know you guys have been working on it for a while, uh, and it is one of those yeah. just probably taken a little bit longer than, than uh, perhaps first predicted, but... That seems to be the nature of technology in, in a lot of respects. It, it is. It's, uh, as I always say, when it comes to strategy, um, figuring out what will happen is not that difficult. The, the biggest question is when it will happen. Uh, Nokia was first with smartphones, didn't really help them. Yeah, absolutely. Good analogy. Well, the other ones mm. that, that um, definitely sticks out there to me uh, out of those six... Um, six phrases is state of convergence that's something we spend a lot because we don't the work i do at memory we don't just look at, at security we look at other smart building technologies as well so we yeah. we talk no. a, lot, a lot about convergence so it'd be interesting to see, you know where you where you think video is and where it fits into uh <clears throat> to the bigger kind of the wider technology ecosystem at the moment yeah, it's, uh, I mean, Axis was the pioneer when it comes to IT video with the first network camera back in 1996. And by 2000, year 2000, we started to focus on the security market with a goal to <clears throat> convert it from analog over to IT-based solutions. So we've been tracking this for many, many years. And so has uh, market research companies, different ones. IHS is probably the, the most quoted out there. Mm -hmm. And... Looking at the foreword in the book from 2008, um, it, it was still a question back then if IP was the way to go. There was a lot of companies still promoting analog technology as the better one, and it was the cheaper one, and, and there was infrastructure in place and more knowledge in place and so forth. So <clears throat> a lot of the book and tone of the book is to convince the market that this is really the future. You've got to start looking into it. And I don't recall the exact numbers, but I'm guessing some 20% of the market in, in revenue was IP back then. You might have a better memory or, or some other numbers, but I, I'm guessing it was in that range. Yeah, that would seem about uh, right. Yeah, I think, I think it was around that. And then you look in 2016, um, when I was working on the updated book, and whatever research you're referring to, <clears throat> not in volume, but in revenue, I think 
75 or 80 percent of the market was IP. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as a moot point, IP is the huge, future, huge. And, and 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 that is, and 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 it's kind of converted over and and never stand at the trade show and had to argue against analog technology <laughs> and saying that that's a better technology. There, there is an exception, and and it's funny to see how the analog is, has has worked out. Um, we always make fun internally of <clears throat> some trade shows where companies still are launching new analog solutions. Um, you know the old. Um, the old SIP uh, resolution um, or and, and uh, PAL resolution and, and, and those kind of technologies. But there is a trend to replace the analog technology with newer analog technologies such as um, HDCCTV, which is kind of replacing the, in the small business. Um, but that is really only replacing the analog technology. The volumes are high, but the revenues is very low. So it's kind of a low-level market that uh, it's difficult to make a lot of money in. Mm. Um, so in general, things are shifting over to IP with maybe an exception of the very, very smallest and very, very cheapest solution that is still kind of a hybrid analog with HDCCTV, which has a higher resolution as a benefit, but uh, it's proprietary, it's you know old infrastructure, doesn't scale, uh, and all those kind of things. So. Uh, you know, analog might still survive uh, five, ten years from now, but just on the bottom of the market, I think. Yeah, and that, I mean, and that does have an, uh, an obviously a knock-on effect to uh, 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 convergence with other systems. Um, IP yeah. make it easier to uh, to integrate uh, and and bring about conversion. Where do you think video is now with, um, for example, adding business value? So, you know, we have over the years written a lot about the need for uh, some security technologies to kind of transcend the market a little bit, to, to, to push out into other areas and think about really uh, adding value to, to, to businesses and the business enterprise. What, where, where do you think we are with it, with that at the moment? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, and I think for a long time, the big goal, uh, at least from our perspective, was to educate the market why it's better to do IT than analog. So uh, with all the, the kind of reasons why it would be a better system. But if you, if you think, if you look a little bit broader and look at the addressable market that is out there, mm. if you look at the number of, the amount of money that's being spent of for making uh, for providing safety to people in different areas. I read a, a ASAS report a couple of years ago, and I think in the United States, it's a thousand dollars per capita that's being spent on making people safe and secure in all different ways, from police force to cyber security to um, uh, physical security of, of different ways and, and using electronic systems and technology for that. But the interesting thing is that most of that money is being spent on manpower and, and a small portion on technology. I think it was only $12 per capita really being spent on any kind of electronic security. And I believe as you know, you don't look at replacing one technology with another one, but you're looking at what's the problem for the end customer. What else can we do to solve problems? What else can we do to augment staff and, and make organizations more efficient? The opportunities um, without limits almost. And 
I, I, we're getting to the point where the quality of the system, the scalability of the system, the intelligence, the integration of being able to do a lot more for the end customers to provide not only safer, but also smarter operations. I have a couple of examples here later on. So I think this is kind of the next phase of the market really to get out of our old uh, perception of we're just providing a video surveillance system to say, hey, we're providing safety and we're trying to make operations and, and uh, cities um, smarter as well. Mm. Yeah, well, when, uh, as you said, if that figure is correct, $1,000 per person, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's a lot of money uh, and, and, and a huge driver. For, I mean, obviously, that, that has been one of the most consistent things in the security industry over the past 10, 15 years is, you know, the, this, the, the threat of terrorism and crime. I mean, they are still and will be the main drivers for this business. It, it is, uh, yeah. and, and that's for sure. And, and in order to, to counter those threats, uh, efficiency and scalability and smarts, I think, is going to be more and more important instead of just raw manpower or um, to address it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when we, you know, were talking about, about doing this webinar, I, I was keen to discuss with you some of the trends that we've talked about at Memory um, um, one being commoditization of video cameras uh, and and this kind of, in inverted commas, sil siliconization. So uh, in terms of commoditization, that is um, something that it, to me seems to be having a big impact on the market. And I'd be interesting to get your view on that and where we are at the moment. What do you, What is your take on that in 2017? Um, it, 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 it's, it's interesting to reflect back a little bit and, and look at, I remember doing some presentation back in 2008, and at the time, according to market research, the top 10 vendors in the video surveillance space only had 50% of the market share, which shows it was a very fragmented market um, for many different reasons. And I estimated that that would consolidate over the coming years. And I was wrong on that on the timing of that because if you look at the 2015 or 2016 report, the top 10 companies only have 40%. So it actually got even more fragmented. And that typically happens in a phase of technology shift because new players are coming in and other ones are you know, struggling to keep along, but there's more players all of a sudden for the same market share. So, so that is um, typically what happens. But now I think when most of the market is, or most of the revenue is converted over to IP, that we're getting into the phase of consolidation. And one way to consolidate is to commoditize and drive pricing down, which we've definitely seen over the last uh, two, three years, much more accelerated than in the past. Mm. What's, what's interesting as well, if you look at the top 10 players on the list, the top three, if you're looking at the America's numbers only, are new companies. It's not the big household brand names that all do video surveillance cameras. It is um, all new players that were not on the list 10 years ago, uh, which shows that you need to be focused and own your technology to be successful. Um, and so, so I think that's we, we are in the beginning of this big phase of, of consolidation. And the question is then, how do you differentiate yourself. 
Yep. And, and what will the market look like? Uh, I don't know. What's what's your guess, Jim? How, how many how many companies will make up the top, you know, fifty percent of the market five years from now? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, my I don't know how good my crystal ball is, but I mean, I look. It's I uh, believe it's inevitable that <clears throat> this and and the past two years we've seen a fair amount of consolidation already. Yeah, I would expect that to continue. Um, um, <clears throat> and I think what well, the main thing is what is it's the barrier to entry in terms of I believe that's increasing, right? So now you know if you want to be, you talked about differentiation. Well, one of the ways to do that, of course, is you know to have better technology than anybody else. Well, to do that now, you know, you've got to be spending so much more on research and development that you know it it does mean that there are some companies who just aren't making enough money to keep up. Nope, that's, that's a great point. How much, how much of an R&D staff do you need uh, to make a difference? And I think that's why a lot of companies getting into OEMing technology from other ones with, with lower cost um, and potentially higher volume. And we can get back to that when we talk about cybersecurity because that presents a very different challenge. Mm. especially in the enterprise space. But I think if you look at companies, what's the way of different, differentiating? And if you look at the cost of the product, <clears throat> there's basically three things that make up the cost of the product. The first one is the actual hardware. Mm -hmm. And if you have a similar camera with similar specifications, the cost of the memory, the cost of the processor, the cost of the PCB, the cost of the plastic metal, and the cost of the lens with similar quality is approximately the same. Yes, if you have much higher volume, you can cut that by a little bit. Uh, but if you have a certain volume, there's not huge differences there when it comes to the hardware cost. Mm. The other two ones that are big costs of the product is quality. And quality, I don't mean the hardware quality so much, but more the software quality, uh, which you need a certain amount of R&D engineers and good CTO and processes to put in place. Mm -hmm. um, and the third one is support as well, uh, which is, you know, all the sales staff, all the technical support, all the people in business development, people you can call, people you can meet with, people that can educate you as an end customer or an integrator. And um, typically, if you look for a lower cost camera, um, the two latter ones are the two ones that are, are, are jeopardized, unless it's a company in the market, not necessarily to make money, but just buy market share. Right. Um, so, so I think that's important to think about. Um, and if you look at the, at the camera as well, uh, if you buy a camera that costs $400 or $200, and if you look at that camera will be installed somewhere for 10 years on a pole that you won't be able to reach, and it needs to be updated over that time uh, 20 times. I'm just making the number up here because of cyber risks or new functionality. The question is, what's really the cost of having that camera up over those 10 years with everything you do, maybe $2,000. So what did you save? You save 10% of the cost, but you jeopardize a lot of the processes around it. And that's another perspective that if you come from the IT space, if you're an IT manager, an IT integrator, you always have that perspective. But in the security space, I think not everyone has that perspective uh, when it comes to the cost of the technology. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just 
quickly wanted to remind people listening, uh, if you do have any questions for Frederick or for myself, then uh, please type them in. We're happy to uh, take some input from, uh, from you guys. Uh, so the second thing in this portion I wanted to mention was siliconization. And I think I mean by that is <clears throat> what some of these chip manufacturers are now doing. For ex And you mentioned NVIDIA before, you mentioned TI um, further back in the conversation. They, uh, and, and, you know, we're, we're moving ahead, right? Moore's Law still holds, roughly. Uh, they mm -hmm. are becoming more uh they're so uh, more efficient um processes uh having being able to uh you know improve the quality and then now looking at sort of embedding some intelligence within that with, within these chips I and mean, how do you view this kind of rising trend I mean, to, to make it easier to do products is typically good for the end customer because there's less energy being spent than everyone to reinvent the wheel. Um, so that's typically what happened in any market, um, happening in the computer market, and happening other markets will happen in markets in the future. So it should be welcome to some extent. Uh, for, for a manufacturer, you need to figure out how you want to play that game when you go into a phase of, of consolidation and, and um, siliconization where anyone can do what you're doing. And there are still areas when you can differentiate on the product side and innovate. And if you look over the last few years, uh, things from, from our perspective and other companies have done other innovation, um, but things such as Sipstream to save on bandwidth, light finder for low light, uh, quality laser focus we had on the latest PTZ. Mm. So there's still many areas that can be innovated for the benefit of the customer. You need to be close to the customer to do those kind of things. But the basic functionality would be less and less to differentiate. Many years ago, companies could differentiate by having, you know, their own proprietary compression. Today, there is less difference in the compression side. You're using H.264 with some enhancement, and the future H.265 with some enhancement. Mm. But I think. When the enterprise space, working close to the customers and, and figuring out the, the complete solutions, how will this product act and interact in, in a more complete system? How will it be managed over the lifetime? Will be bigger differentiators than the basic functionality and the lens and the speeds and feeds of the actual camera, I believe. Right. I mean, because I was just wondering, like, how much of a disruptive kind of force this will be. Um, in the sense, for example, you know, companies that provide software for intelligent video, I mean, are they going to see this as something that's because, you know, what it, what it means in some respects to me, or at least, is that a lot of the intelligence might move to the camera. Um, and therefore, then, how does a sort of a, someone who is just doing software and not doing hardware and software? cope with that? That, that? That's a good question. I think the early estimates from the video intelligence market was that it would be a separate market with, you know, 20, 30 players doing some different intelligence that you sold to manufacturers uh, or integrated with, with different hardware manufacturers such as Axis or put them on like an application up on the camera. I think what we see more and more 
is it's relatively complex to integrate because then you need to integrate it with a camera, you need to integrate it with the VMS. So companies that take more responsibility for the complete solution, I think will have an easier way to differentiate themselves on the market. Um, and I think that's the trend. We're seeing fewer of the, of the pure uh, video intelligence companies and, and more general video surveillance manufacturer from the VMS or camera side or both that integrate the intelligence in their solution, which is also a way to add value to your solution as well. Yeah, yeah, good point. I wanted to go on and talk about something I know that I've seen from you guys over the past few years is, you know, your willingness to to release new IP products. Um, so I'm just interested in, you know, the... The kind of your your strategy behind that, and I know for so for example, there was a, a few years back you you produced a access control panel, uh, and then uh, more recently um, a, a, an IP. Let me get this right. It was a horn, basically. Well, no, a um, voice, right? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, <clears throat> it's interesting because. It is back to, to the roots of access to some extent when it comes to Internet of Things. And it was, it's funny, as, as this term is being mentioned more and more over the last few years, and it's you know, on the lips of anyone that talks about the technology or, or in, in any place you read about the Internet of Things. Mm. And back in 1995, 96, um, Access was mainly a printer connectivity company, but we have good knowledge of connecting things to the network. So the vision back then was something called a thin server, right. having small servers directly connecting devices to the network, storage devices, scanner, um, scanners and, and copiers, and also cameras. And that was kind of our version of IoT. And then the cameras took off, so we only focused on that for many, many years. And as the market is maturing more, we're now getting back to the roots of connecting other devices to the network. So it's kind of a, a, a total deja vu for, for us when it comes to the strategy. At least the people have been with Access for a long time. Right, yeah, sure. Um, and, and the question is, the logic, why do you want to connect things to the Internet? Um, and the logic keeps being the same all the time. You want to have scalable system, a lower cost or lower, lower TCO of the total system and also better functionality. And if you look at the first one we released, I think that was three years ago now, mm. with the access control product, um, the, the innovation, at least what we thought was, uh, was twofold. One, being able to have the device close to the door. I don't know how familiar you are with access control. I, have, I can't claim to have done any access control installation myself, but I hear about the number of wires you need for the lock unlock the request to exit and and different kind of things there's a lot of wiring going to every door and if you can put the controller close to the door you save a lot and then you can do poe to that just the same logic as you do with the network camera um so so that was relatively easy to sell to the market um the logic of doing that the thing that was more difficult is Another thing that I thought would have happened a long time ago in access control, and that would be the integration between video system and access control. So many times you still see access control systems going side by side of a video surveillance system. And they're not integrated as often as you would think uh, today. And that was the other driver we were thinking that 
that would be easier to integrate because you have a similar programming interface for the device and all of a sudden you have this hallelujah of everything in one system and working together. Um, we're still working on getting it integrated in some of the access control systems and they might not have very strong video systems or in video system they might not have very strong access control systems. So it goes back to it's still relatively segmented market. It's taken a little bit more time to get them integrated than we estimated. Mm. Are you surprised a little that sort of maybe IP has not had as great an impact on access control as video? I, I, I met a, a person who was an engineer or CTO at HID many years ago. Yeah. And when I talked to him, I was all enthusiastic about the change of the and video surveillance market, and I said, when well, is the same going to happen in the access control? And he said, one thing you need to understand is that people change IT systems every five years, video system every 10 years, and access control system every 30 years. So be patient. <laughs> and I think as long as you have an access control system that works, you swipe the card, you go in, you, you know, push the uh, request to exit button, you go out, as long as it works, and it's stable, people don't want to touch it. So I think that's one of one of the challenges. Um, and also, if, if a video camera goes down, if you have 100 video cameras in the store, for example, and one goes down, the business goes on, and you know people might be annoyed if something happens, but typically no one noticed. Mm. And if the access control system go down and people can't get into the store, within minutes, everyone knows, and it's a big issue. So the stability and doing something that you trust is is inherent in that business model or in the market. The robustness of the system is critical. Yeah. But you don't want to change it as much. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and then now, uh, now into voice, right? Yes. And, and that's an exciting market, and I'm, I must admit, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of things in the company, but I wasn't very involved in the audio side. And when we launched the product, I was a little puzzled. I'd say, okay, what are we going to use this for? Um, well, when you think about the audio market, what, what, I, what I learned as we're building out different experience centers, as we call them throughout North America, one thing that always strikes me as very expensive is the audio systems. And it's never the speakers it's always the head end and the integration cost of doing it. So you have dumb devices sitting on the edge that are inexpensive, and then you have a complex and expensive head end that you need to integrate everything to with lots of cables going back and forth. So that sounds very much like the video surveillance space some 10 years ago when there was analog cameras, expensive wiring, complex head end with some limitation. And the, the analogy is the same and, and when I started to research a little bit, I you know, why are there not any IP speakers? And there might be some companies that done it, but it's not a very big part of the audio market. So I think the same logic as we had with the video surveillance space is the same in, in the in the audio space, which really excites me. It you have a more expensive but intelligent device at the edge, and you can piggyback on existing infrastructure. You have extreme scalability. Um, when it, you can do different zones of one speaker or 10 speakers or 30 speakers or 100 speakers without redoing any wiring. You can integrate it to different systems like video surveillance systems and play pre-recorded messages easily. And you can integrate it with uh, SIP, 
SIP for, for basically calling, giving it a phone number and calling it from my cell phone and, and talk to it. Plus, the biggest challenge we have with a, with a speaker is to know whether it works or not. And the only way to know that is to go to the speaker and listen and make sure the sound is okay. Uh, with an intelligent IT-based speaker, you can have a self-test because you have a built-in microphone as well to make sure the sound comes out okay. Uh, so there's tons of benefits. I'm, I'm very excited about that. And we're now in the same way of educating the market as we were in the video surveillance space 15, 15 years ago. So maybe it's time to do another book about intelligent IP audio. Yeah, you have to speak to your publisher about that. I'm sure he'd be very happy. <laughs> And then so, of course, I, I don't know what, what, what your readers and, and your research says. Um, I'm not too familiar with the market, but I'm pretty excited about the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you said, it's, there's, there's certainly parallels there between you know, what you've done in video and the potential of, um, uh, of voice. Right? It's, uh, it's really exciting. And I, I know that, you know, I mean, I just put up the slide of the Internet of Things. And again, something that we've, in the context of buildings, we've written a lot about and how we hope that, you know, this, the, the, this broad trend of, connect, of connectivity, connecting smart devices, um, will bring about some real positive benefits for, you know, creating better buildings, essentially, you know. Um, and what, what I think strikes, strikes me, uh, you know, when I go to conferences, speak to new people, um, one of the big things is, th you know, this stuff, right, these smart things um, are still quite siloed, right? Still quite, I mean, surprised me going to, for example, um, uh, a conference earlier in the year in Amsterdam, which is all about IP uh, stuff right but but just audio uh, digital signage these kind of things that that um, it's might as well be a completely different world from access control and and video that um, that getting people to really think about converging these things it could be could be a barrier it is, and, and that's also surprising. We talked about the video surveillance and access control, and when you go to IFSEC or ISC West, the vendors are there side by side, and the customer are typically the security manager, the integrators are typically the same companies, so still those are siloed. So imagine a market where you have the end customer being you know, separate departments, and you have separate integrators or installers, for example, in Intercom, it's typically an electrical contractor, more so than the security integrator that do those systems. Right. So to convert those markets where you have where you're not aligned on the end customer side or on the integrator side, typically takes longer time. Yeah, and we've not even talked about lighting uh, or control of uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, which is generally not even the electrical contract. It might be part of the mechanical contract. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean the, 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 one of the things that we've seen which is encouraging is a willingness coming at and a push from end users. To, so companies that are um, predominantly probably in the IT space who are kind of like, you know, newer companies that, that are data-driven who 
are excited about an opportunity in building and thinking, right, okay, how can we make our buildings more smart? Because they are focused on retaining staff and making their staff more productive. That is something that, that I think could help to drive more intelligence in buildings. Um, it might not. Uh, yeah, it that. might not come from the manufacturers in the end. No, I, and I think you're right. Having new companies, and what we discussed a couple of minutes ago here, if you look at the market today, the top three in the Americas market are companies that weren't in the space ten years ago. Mm. And I'm not by any stretch making any comparison with with. Uh, amazing companies such as Tesla, but you know, the most successful in electrical cars is not one of the existing car manufacturers, even though all technology was available and they could have done it because they're stuck in an infrastructure and a base that not necessarily want to make them change. And that's always a challenge if, if you're a larger player in existing markets, which we need to think about now as we are a bigger player than we were when we were a challenger 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. How do you maintain that uh, level of innovation within within your um, organization. Uh, absolutely. It's a, it's a very important point. So we've got about uh, 15 minutes left, maybe a little bit less. And I would, one of the last things I really wanted to talk to you about was cybersecurity. So uh, kind of two things from, from my perspective, you know, we've just done uh, some a research report on this just been published last week, looking at its impact on smart buildings. But then, of course, you know, since we last spoke, we've seen some very significant DDoS attacks using smart things. And then even last week, uh, ransomware attacks across the globe. Uh, does seem to me that, you know, this is, you know, it's always been for the last five six years in the background but this is turning into something that really can't be ignored uh and <laughs> <laughs> anymore right um so i think one of the th first thing do you think that iot connected devices are in some respects the path of least resistance for hackers um you know why were for example were they targeted in the ddos attacks at the end of last year yeah. Um, I mean, just like IoT and cyber to some extent is connected because there's so many things. It's always fun to, 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 I was listening to a presenter. He was, he used to be a director of NSA, I think. Mm -hmm. He said he has the best way to make all systems 100% safe and that's to disconnect them. Yeah, right. But that means they're not useful anymore. It's like making a house safe by having no doors or windows, right? Great, but you can't use it. So you have to risk it. Right? Like anything in life, you have to have a certain risk, and you have to live with it. And I think that's unfortunately when, what, what, the way you have to think about fiber. It will always be there as long as we're connected somehow. And, um, but, it, but your comment about IoT, we've been in this space now for a long time, and we did some quick estimates saying we had 20 million devices connected from the history or all the way back to access all kind of different things we've sold. Yeah. So we've been living in this world for a long time. <clears throat> but I think if you read magazines and talk about cyber attacks, up until a year or two ago, it was mostly about companies being hacked and for people to steal different kind of data. There was credit card data, social security data, and, and, and those kind of things. I think it's 
the level, <clears throat> we launched some uh, cooperation. I think it was yeah, a year and a half ago. We called it Unified Platform with, I think it was Avaya, uh, EMC, and um, Genetech to talk about how we can have a totally or a safe system you can do by having all the different components providing um, as best of a cybersecurity solution you could. Uh, and that was a year and a half ago, and the interest was lukewarm. Some government facility, government institutions said, okay, that's interesting, let's talk to us. And all of a sudden, sometimes last year with a big uh, virus and, and IoT devices, specifically network cameras being used, it's daily now and, and it's it's very high on everyone's list of of um, of um, importance um so i think it, it's really i'm not saying i was hoping for this to happen but we talked about it for a long time we're trying to come up with a solution and show that we're doing as good as we can you can never be perfect in this space uh, but it's definitely if you want to play in this space it's of utmost importance to have the trust from the end customer and integrators that as a company, you have not only the technology, but more important, the processes and, and thinking in place to, to do as good as you can in this, you know, increasing threat environment. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we did a, <clears throat> earlier in the year, we did a really interesting webinar with um, Guy Runza, uh, you know, like a cybersecurity consultancy company, but he done some specific research into the Mirai virus and, and, you know, he actually pulled up some of the code and it was really interesting to see, you know, they had specifically targeted certain devices. So they knew that, mm. um, you know, a specific camera or a specific thing might have a this default password and that was kind of hard-coded into it. So it would um, yeah. go out and look for those devices. Uh, and, you know, on on top of that, it was just... Uh, the fact that uh, a lot of these things weren't were, were clearly there, uh, not being installed properly, and 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 I, where can we where can, what can we do? You know, right now, in terms of improving such security of uh, within the video industry. Yeah, I think that's a responsibility for, for all companies and, and integrators and end customer. I think it starts with what we talked about before integration. This security system has still to some extent been siloed systems managed by departments that are not used to those kind of threats. If you're working in the IT department, this is what happens all the time. And if you run a facilities or security organization, you might not have the same processes in place. You might not change passwords. You might not think about that each of those devices have a password and the ability to get in there. And I was amazed reading a little bit about the Mirai virus, how easy it was for the hackers. And Symantec did a um, analysis, how many passwords were coded in when they did this attack and trying to get into to, to those uh, network cameras and IoT devices. Mm. It was only 62 um, username and password that they need to, to, to get to, to have in the code to get into millions of devices. Right. So it's almost embarrassing for the industry. It's like, is that all you need to get into million devices? And sometimes it comes to technology, but more important processes in place. How do you harden the system? How do you educate the integrator to do the right thing uh, for the end customer? And I think that's an undertaking we have to do as, a, as an industry 
to ensure that we don't get a bad name for you know having the least secure link in the system and way to get into to um, to different kind of uh, networks or or you know do those distributed uh, DOS attacks. Right, and you mentioned education there. Do you think that um, there is a skill shortage? Oh, oh absolutely, absolutely. Um, there's a huge. I, I don't know what you think, but what what I see out there, we talk about cyber with our integrators, and uh, it's almost uh, you don't want to open a can of worms because if you have uh, some integrators are absolutely fantastic, but if you have some integrators not used to this process, and you go into larger end customer, you promise that you're cyber secure without knowing what you're talking about. You, you're creating more problems than you're solving. Yeah, yeah, and then you know, forward to from Mirai Attack. So what we see last uh, last week, uh, not obviously a distributed denial of service attack, but still um, a different flavor of, um, you know, security risk. Uh, it's kind of ransomware specifically targeting Windows operating systems. Um, although, you know, not affecting the video surveillance system, video surveillance in that sense, but still huge impact on, um, you know, the economy as a whole. Uh, what 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 next do you think i mean is this just going to carry on um it's like many threats that when you have a, a ways to protect against the threat you know then another threat arises that you haven't thought about and that's why i think it's interesting that there's some organizations out there trying to standardize on cyber. Well, if you standardize in a way to protect yourself, the attackers know exactly what you standardize on, so they find different ways. And this is moving within days and weeks and hours. And I think one lesson learned here, I was reading about Microsoft, who's promised to never do an update again for XP, some old operating system. Within a day or two, within hours, they had updated patch software to, to lock down the, the way that the attackers were getting in. And I think that going back to the commoditization discussion we have, mm -hmm. and if you're a manufacturer that focuses on low cost, and if you're a manufacturer that OEMs technology from someone else uh, based on you know siliconization and just doing a simple camera, uh, how can you guarantee for your end customers that you can do new code within a day or two to tighten those holes that might be? Because no system is perfect. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if you have bought technology from another vendor, or OEM, it, it might take weeks or months to get the new code, uh, and that will not be accepted. Um, I think, in, especially in enterprise level installations. Mm. Yeah, I think two things I pull out from that. Um, one is, you know, for example, some of this, you know, especially in smart home, for example, devices over the past few years, you think a lot of them are like pulling together different bits of technology uh, cobbled together. So they might use AWS or they might use certain things. And you think, well, really, how, how secure are some of these things? Because, you know, as a startup business, it's great that you're trying to innovate. But it's, you know, if you're, you're creating something that really hasn't been the whole process thought through, um, then what you're doing is basically putting – uh, devices out there on that are connected that are a threat, a direct threat. Yeah, uh, and that's that's dangerous. 
Exactly, and also it comes to where is the liability. I, I met a person here at the party last weekend, and he's working for a local company here. They are selling cyber insurance. It's like, oh, how, how does that work? Yeah. And it was not so much, you know, is assessing companies and their websites and and many different things they can soak in or get information from what's how how things are being processed on your websites or how you're being connected, and then they put a risk profile and then you pay an insurance based on that. I didn't get a lot more details than that, but I think as a as a manufacturer and or as an integrator, and that's the thing as well. Because if if some large company is being broken into or or uh, data is being stolen, and you are the one that created a hole, um, you might be liable, uh, and for that you need an insurance. Yeah, huge. And, and that I think is going to be a big. I expect some of those companies to show up at ISC West next year. I think. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to to end on. Uh, I could we could definitely talk for another hour on all of these. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. But I know you have to get off. So um, a couple of things I just want to say. Uh, first, again, big thank you to Project Haystack. If you want to check out more about that open source project, go to project-haystack.org. Uh, also, want to say uh, you can subscribe to all of these webinars. We are now on uh, SoundCloud and also iTunes. So if you just search for Smart Buildings on iTunes, you can find us. Uh, and also, uh, next webinar is scheduled for 7th of June, and it's with uh, Ron Victor, CEO of a, a San Francisco company called IOTM. That's I-O-T-I-U-M. And they're um, doing some really cool stuff with, with uh, networking of IoT uh, devices. And this is a really neat solution for baking the cybersecurity into that. And uh, it's like a layered approach to, to security. Um, um, so separating different types of, um, of network devices. Um, so that's going to be a great conversation. And uh, stay tuned for that. And obviously, last, um, just want to say a huge thank you, Frederick, for taking the time to talk to me today. Really interesting conversation. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Always a pleasure. And uh, let's chat again when I've done another book, hopefully <laughs> yeah. a long time from now. Well, we've chat before that. Definitely. All right. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care. Bye.